Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, I'm so happy to have on physiotherapist Tom Goom. So Tom has gained the nickname Running Physio after years of combining his passion for physio and love for running to specialize in management of running injury. He's written widely on the topic with over 200 evidence-based articles for his own site, running-physio.com, as well as contributing to the BJSM blog, Runner's World, and The Telegraph. In 2016, he published a masterclass on proximal hamstring tendinopathy in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. He presents his running repairs course in the UK internationally and online, covering a range of topics from training load management to bone stress injuries, strength and conditioning, and more. So in this podcast, what we decided to do is we decided to tackle a case study. So you'll hear the case study right in the beginning, and then we kind of go through Tom's uh, subjective evaluation, his objective evaluation, and some possible treatments for this patient. Uh, our fictitious patient has gluteal tendinopathy. We reference a couple of different papers. All of those papers can be found over at the podcast website, which is podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And you one click and we'll take you to all the papers that we're referencing in today's episode. So hopefully you guys get a good idea of how Tom may approach these patients and some ideas for your own patients with gluteal tendinopathy. Enjoy. Hey, Tom, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Hi, Karen. Thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Yes, I know. We spoke about this when we met in Copenhagen. So we were at Sports Congress in Copenhagen and was at the end of January, beginning of February, where uh, for me, it was really great because you get to meet all these people that you only know via social media actually in person. Absolutely. I think that, that was a highlight for me of the conference. It, there was the people, you know, it was such a lovely group, wasn't it, that we were there with and mm. chatting to and sharing a, a dance and a drink with. It was, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. I remember Christina Lee, the physio from uh, Canada, I think she put on Twitter when we had that like massive selfie that Sarah took. She was, she said something to the effect of, you know, I came to Copenhagen with four friends and left with like 20 or something like that, which I thought yeah. was so sweet. And uh, for all the people listening, like I highly encourage you to go to that conference next year. I think it's a great conference. I mean, don't, what, what did you think of the overall conference? I thought it was brilliant. I would, yeah, yeah I would, I would definitely echo that. I definitely recommend people to go and, um, I think it felt the, the thing that was amazing about it was with the people is it just felt like being amongst old friends, which is, is strange when they're people you haven't met face to face, but quite quickly it just felt like being amongst old friends, just chatting and, you know, and enjoying all, obviously all the amazing content, but, you know, having some people that you can chat, chat with over a beer or two at the end of the evening is, uh, you know, always a highlight as well. Yeah, and I think those conversations at the end of the evening are always the ones that tend to be very meaningful and tend to give you so much energy and potential when you go back to treating your patients or go back to your research. Or I just find that those late night conversations are great. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Providing you can remember anything the next day. That's, that's true. That's, that's a good point. And, <laughs> and, you know, I had like the flu. So I was like in bed super early each night. Um, yes. But I, I did like the night of the, the dinner and the gala. I stayed up as late as I could. Um, but it yeah, was, I remember you being up fairly late, I think. Yeah, I was yeah. up late on that one <laughs> night. But the other nights I was like, nope. Yeah. I, sick. I am so sick. Um, okay. So today we're going to be going over a case study, which I think is a great way for people to learn. So thank you for being open to this format for the podcast for this episode. So this is our case study. We have a 55-year-old woman who runs half and full marathons, but also relies on running to help with mood and mental well-being, which as we all know is very common. She presents to physiotherapy with gluteal pain after an increase in training volume and hill running. So that's our case. So now, Tom, let's take it to you. We'll kind of go through the stages of how you would evaluate and maybe some possible treatments. So let's start with the subjective. Oh, I like to, to, to really get the patient's story first and foremost and to give, really try and give them a chance to, to, to tell it uninterrupted. So I'll often start with, you know, simple questions like, you know, how did this all start? Can you tell me a little bit about what brings you in today? And then give them the chance to tell me as much as they want to really um, without wanting to jump in too much, you know, so they get a chance to really share with me what the, you know, the important things are um, to them, you know, how the injuries come about and things. Um, and then once I've heard their side of the story, then I'll try and probe in a little bit more to find out about various different details. You know, broadly speaking, I'll, I'll want to know about um, their, their training that's led up to, to the injury, what their goals are, what they're looking to try and get back to. But also really, really importantly, I want to know about the impact the injury is having on them, you know, beyond the pain, but what kind of impact is it having on, on their life and activities that they, you know, that really matter to them. And so if we're taking this example of this 55-year-old woman who's coming in with gluteal pain, and, and I'm just going to say, I'm going to make some things up here, add to it. Let's just say her pain is 6 out of 10, and it's actually stopped her from running. So that's okay. the information you're getting from her. My pain is, it's intense enough that it stopped me from running. It's intense enough that I came to see you, and I'm a little nervous and, and a little scared of getting back into running because this pain was so intense. Yeah. So, um, important, good information to know, obviously the, the severity and stuff with it. Um, and there's lots of different sort of ways you can approach it, but I might, um, use that as an opportunity to say, well, you know, what, what do you believe is actually, um, happening then within that, within that area? What, what do you believe is going on to see if I can, um, find out a little bit more about her beliefs around the injury? You know, what does she think it is? Um, and it often the answer will be, well, you know, I've looked it up online, I've asked Dr. Google and I, I think it's a trochanteric bursitis or I think it's a gluteal tendinopathy or something like that. But I'll often then want to know a little bit more about, well, you know, what do you feel is going on in that, that tendon? And, and maybe that's when they'll say, well, I've read that you, know, it, uh, you get these micro tears in the tendon if you exercise and if you keep exercising, it can lead to, to damage and maybe even a rupture we can then sort of find out some of the beliefs underlying the pain when they're talking about the pain itself, because then that gives us an opportunity to address some of those beliefs. Um, 
And we're just starting to see that fear of damage is, um, is a factor coming up in the research as an issue in tendinopathy. So looking out for, um, for that kind of signs that there's fear of damage and maybe avoidance of the activity because of that fear of damage, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And then also thinking about uh, what does she feel like her future prognosis is going to be? Does she feel like, well, I need to stop running. And if I stop running, then it's going to affect this and it's going to affect my life. It's going to affect my relationship. So you have that catastrophic thinking that can kind of sneak in there as well. So how do you parcel out if someone has that sort of catastrophic, uh, if they're catastrophizing the injury? Well, hopefully, as you, you know, as you ask them about their beliefs around the pain, some of those things will come out. Um, but also there are, um, you know, other signs really, sometimes they're going to have an exaggerated uh, pain response. So uh, pain that's kind of out of proportion with, with load and things that's happening with it. Um, there's also things that I would tend to use like the pain catastrophizing scale of, um, that um, is actually really useful. It actually uh, is it's a 13 point questionnaire. Um, where if you, you you answer each question and if you score above 30, it shows you have a particularly sort of a negative viewpoint towards your pain. So if they're, come, you know, the, in the interview, you're kind of thinking they come across as quite fearful, quite negative about the pain, perhaps that seems to be emp- like really um, magnifying the pain, then I might ask them to, to fill out something like that so we've got a bit of an, an objective measure. Um, which then guides your treatment as, you know, if they're scoring very highly there, I want to spend a bit more time actually focusing on the education and addressing that fear than I would want to say spend really exploring the biomechanics. You know, it helps you to prioritize to know, you know, where do you want to focus your your treatment in the early stages? So now if you're getting into her, as we said, she has an increase in training volume and hill running. How do you transition into finding out what she was doing, what she is doing. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, the, this and the pain, you know, they're kind of linking together in the assessment. So I think I'd probably start thinking about it on a kind of run by run basis first, like mm. think about sort of the uh, like changes within a run and after a run. And then I'd sort of think about a bit broader. So how about how is your training structure over a typical week? And then I'd start to think a little bit more longer term, how has it changed in the lead up to your pain? So we're kind of getting a good idea about, you know, the the training um, on a kind of small level, a larger level and over a longer period of time. But also crucially, you're getting an idea how the pain responds um, to training. Because it's quite, I think part sometimes of the way people think about pain is, um, and other things in life to be fair, is it's a bit black and white. Mm-hmm. I have pain or I don't have pain. I run or I don't run. And sometimes that process of exploring how the pain actually behaves can show them it's not quite so, it's not actually really an on off thing. There's a, there's other sort of, there's a kind of shades of gray involved, if you like. So I would often start by saying, okay, well, you're telling me it's a six out of 10 pain when you run. At what point does that kick in? Is that literally the moment you're starting running? Or can you manage a couple of miles before that kicks in or even a couple of minutes? And, and then how does it behave if you keep going? Does that pain stay the same? Does it actually get better? Because we know tendon pain can have a warm-up effect where it actually feels bad to start with and then it gets better as they go. Um, and, and staying with it, like, is there anything you can do to change it? Does it feel any better if you're, you're running a bit more slowly or if you adjust your running style a little bit? 
or if maybe you avoid things like hills if that's provocative. So that all then becomes quite useful information for me to be able to guide that person because I might find actually there is a distance they can do before the pain kicks in. Or yes, the pain kicks in, but actually it gets a bit better if they keep going. So I'd want to know, you know, in detail, how's that, how's it all behaving during that run? And then how is it afterwards? And really, how is it for about 24 to 48 hours afterwards? Because Mm -hmm. we know with a lot of running injuries, but especially tendons, is that they often react the next day. So that will then help me to see, you know, how is this tendon, how is this person really managing this training they're doing? And if they're getting a big reaction in pain the next day, that's often a telltale sign that they're working too hard. And then we, we want to adjust the training accordingly. And is there ever a point at which you're interviewing someone, and we'll get into your objective uh, exam in a second, but is there ever a point where you're working with someone and you are just say to them, stop running? So yeah, it's, it's very rare for me to, to actually... Um, tell someone to stop I, I try and um, and help people make an informed decision really rather than say you shouldn't be running right now um, but um, there are situations where I'm more likely to advise someone to, to take a break from running and um, what it is generally is this kind of balancing act of risk versus reward so um, if you if you feel that continuing running at the moment is of low risk in terms of flaring up symptoms or in terms of causing um, other you know bigger issues, um, and there's a you know, important reward there in terms of maybe training for a specific event or in this lady's case running for her mental well-being, we're more inclined to say, okay, well, let's try and keep some running going. Um, quite different if you're looking at someone with something like. Uh, perhaps with this lady in our mind we might have as a differential diagnosis a stress fracture uh, maybe a, a femoral neck stress fracture uh, which can present with you know vague, vague thigh pain and symptoms around the hip if we genuinely thought it was a femoral neck stress fracture that's a high risk stress fracture so might the, the risk levels go up significantly and in that situation we're going to say to the patient really we do need you to, to stop um, impact activity for the moment because the risk is this could progress to a true fracture. So is that that process of weighing up risk versus reward and and discussing it with the patient and then hopefully they can make a good informed decision. Um, and the reason why I put it like that is because one of my bugbears is when people are told you shouldn't run anymore and they're often told it in quite stark terms and they're often not told that it's a short term thing. And I've known people give up running altogether off mm-hmm. the back of advice like that. And I, I really don't want to, to, that to happen. So if we're going to take a break, we always explain why. We always say this is a short-term strategy. This is what we're recommending. But as soon as we can safely get you back, we'll be planning to do so. Right. And making that, like you said, an informed decision between you and the patient, not just you saying, don't do this. I mean, you have a young child. So how often <laughs> do you say, don't do this? And then what is he going to do? Yeah, absolutely. Probably yeah. going to do it. <laughs> it sounds like you've met Woody. It sounds like I you've have, met him. <laughs> I have not, but I've met a lot of young, I have a, I have a nephew. So I know if I'll be like, Ryan, don't do that. The first thing he's going to, if I say, Ryan, don't hit your sister, he'll go over and hit, hit his sister. So yeah. It's always important to kind of get that patient on your side and give them as much information as possible. So I think that's great advice. Now, is there anything else that you're really looking at in your subjective uh, Well, well, let's stay with the training for a moment if we can. So we've talked about like how's the pain responding during and after the running and is there anything we can change? Then I'd want to know 
what's your weekly training schedule like? So literally asking this, this lady, what do you do each day of the week? You know, what, what running are you doing? How far, how fast on which surface? You know, what are your rest days? What other sports do you do? Does your, um, your work or family life impact on that? Um, you know, maybe she, um, she, on one of the days of the week, she looks after uh, her grandchildren or something like that and she's carrying them around on one hip and that aggravates her pain. So I, I want to get a good idea of, you know, we call it with athletes a microcycle, like your typical week. So we can look again, you know, what can we adjust here to keep this lady doing the things she wants to do, but to bring it down a notch or two to a manageable level? You know, is it about popping in an extra rest day here and there or just looking at that training structure and saying, okay, you're doing a little bit too much of the hill running here or you're actually, um, you've got quite a few sessions back to back that, you know, tendons don't tend to do so well with back to back training days. So looking for all those little things that we can adjust to keep the person running, but without actually having to stop altogether. Um, and that, that's where I think the, the weekly schedule is particularly useful. And then going beyond that to the longer training period, it's, you know, asking, well, what changed in the lead up to your hip pain? You know, what were you doing differently? Um, and seeing then, you know, perhaps um, if she's on Strava or one of the, uh, you know, Garmin Connect or any of the other apps, or maybe she keeps a little training log, we can have a look and see, you know, has our training volume dramatically increased in the lead up to the pain? Has she increased the intensity of the hill running? Because that helps us to, uh, to establish, you know, causes and helps us to stop making the same mistake again in future. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's kind of like a la Tim Gabbett, you know, getting what is their chronic workload and they have any acute spikes that maybe could have contributed to their symptoms. Absolutely. And to, yeah, Tim Gabbett's work is, is fantastic. And that is very much along that kind of idea, that load management, because we know load is an important part of the development of tendon pain. So I think we need, in a nutshell, to know about how they've loaded. I think, you know, that's, that's it. And if we know their goals as well, we know how they've loaded and we know how much we're going to have to get them loading in their training in the future. So that can help us in, inform the rehab. Right. That may, and all of this is going kind of into your head and you're thinking about some differential diagnoses right away, correct? Yeah. I think the thing is with this, we, we're assuming this lady has a, you know, um, a clear gluteal tendinopathy. Of course, we know in real life it's not, it's not often as clear as that. Um, we would have differential diagnosis uh, coming into our mind. But I think generally with, with runners, regardless of the pathology, I think we want to know their training their training history and their goals because that you know they're going to be uh, important i think uh you know in their rehab and in stopping them from repeating the same sort of training problems again yeah absolutely okay so we've gone through a pretty good subjective exam we know what she's feeling we've got her mental state ish uh you know her training schedule because no one really gives that divulges that information on day one no no i mean i suppose with the only other thing is we we would maybe ask it a little bit more about the mood and the mental health. And that would come out when we ask, you know, what impact is this injury having on your life? People will often say, well, you know, I, I run because it helps me uh, manage my stress, my anxiety, my depression. So actually I'm, I am struggling a little bit at the moment because I don't have that coping strategy, um, which then, you know, might lead you down other avenues, perhaps talking about other types of coping strategies, you know, mm-hmm. relaxation or mindfulness or actually, in clinic, we work with a number of um, counsellors. So we would often say, well, you know, if this is having an impact on you, come in and see one of my colleagues and, and they'll help. You know, they usually do a kind of 
15 minutes sort of free assessment to see if there's something they can help with and then go on to you know maybe help them out and find other coping strategies so they're not so reliant on their sport in the future yeah and i think that's amazing that you have access to that in your clinic now let's go on let's move on now to your objective examination so you've gotten all this information from the patient this powerful information how do you then go about evaluating your runners well, I, um, I have a sneaky peek at their walking as they come down the corridor to the clinic room. I always try and do that when they're not aware that I'm watching them. So I want to see, you know, can they actually walk uh, comfortably? Are they, are they, you know, if they're limping into the clinic room, it's probably unlikely they're going to be comfortable going out for a run later. So I will have a look, a look, a look at their walking. I'll look at some of the simple stuff often first, like um, single leg balance and single leg squat control, which is quite important in this population because we know that often they, they struggle with control around the pelvis, so particularly looking to see can they um, prevent you know, contralateral pelvic drop happening when they're balancing on one leg. Um, and actually, if you hold that single leg balance test for around about 30 seconds, it'll often be provocative for pain. So it, it can also be part of this sort of diagnostic process because it's provocative to pain in gluteal tendinopathy. Um, and then I would look at um, maybe single leg squat control as well but thinking more like the kind of mini squat that would replicate the kind of loading part of running. So not your tra traditional kind of sitting back into it squat that you would do, but looking to see um, how they can control a single leg dip. And again, looking to see, you know, pelvic control, femur control, those things that we know are going to be relevant in gluteal tendinopathy, because if you're getting lots of pelvic drop and you're getting lots of hip abduction, it's going to take the tendon into a potentially a provocative compressive position mm -hmm. so i'd look at those kind of basic control aspects um, they help guide the rehab as well because if you can't balance on one leg for more than a few seconds it's unlikely you're going to go off and do really high level rehab stuff you might need to get that controlling first and then there's kind of common areas i would look at that i think might feed into that so things like ankle range ankle dorsiflexion range if um, I've seen one or two cases with runners where they're actually really quite restricted in their dorsiflexion and their symptomatic side, and it affects their movement, and they actually move into a bit more hip adduction to compensate for it during things like the single leg squat. So you may find sometimes things further down the kinetic chain could be a piece of the puzzle. Um, so I would routinely look at you know ankle dorsiflexion in, um, in runners and see if that might be a factor. Um, and then we, we go on to, to assessing um, the surrounding area. I think it's important to look at lumbar spine range of movement because the lumbar spine and hip are intimately linked. Look at hip range of movement itself, um, in, including um, extension, which sometimes gets left off but can be restricted. Um, and then assessing the key muscles um, that are going to be involved in managing load. Is, um, gluteal load is highest actually in the stance phase of running when we're absorbing load mm -hmm. and that's when the muscles like the quads and the calf are very active in absorbing load so might include somewhere in their assessment some assessment of quad strength of calf strength as well as um, you know gluteal strength um, and probably already include some uh, assessment of a hamstring as well so we get a really good overview of where their strengths and weaknesses are and then where we can kind of target the rehab and how are you assessing strength in the clinic? Um, I use a number of different techniques. With glute mead, what I've leaned towards recently is using a handheld dynamometer and assessing them um, 
you isometrically with that mm-hmm. um, and then comparing left and right. And sometimes you're seeing really significant differences with that. So sometimes people with literally 25% of the strength on their, on their symptomatic side versus their good side. Um, but I, I would consider, you know, your single leg stand and single leg squat as also assessments of glutes function. You know, they're looking at how the glutes actually manage the function of control. So I think a combination of assessing the strength and assessing the control part of the glutes is, mm-hmm. is quite useful. Um, with um, hamstrings, I do a really simple um, single leg bridge to fatigue test um, as a way of testing the posterior chain. You count reps, left versus right. I do a similar thing with a calf. I do calf raises to fatigue um, on the edge of a step and compare left and right. Um, with quads, it depends on the patient. I might do single leg rise tests, which is basically um, repeated sit to stands on one leg, again, comparing reps left and right. Um, or I might go for something um, like a leg press 10 rep max or a leg extension 10 rep max. Mm-hmm. But these would all be tweaked to suit the patient. Some patients, um, you know, as we see in recent research in gluteal tendinopathy, are actually really going to be quite disabled by the condition and they're not, they're not going to be able to do you know single leg bridges single leg rise session you might have to go a lot more more simple with those tests and other athletes we see i saw one lady with a gluteal tendinopathy was doing a 96 mile ultra marathon and actually had three or four pt sessions uh, with a personal trainer in the gym every week so we, we weren't identifying major differences left and right just with the reps to fatigue testing with her so then we had to load her up and look at sort of 10 repetition max testing things in the gym to actually identify much of a difference left and right. So it always has to be tweaked to, to suit the, you know, the individual in, in front of you, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really great advice. And, and thank you for sharing the ways that you assess strength because I think everybody has their own little ways of doing that. And I'm happy that you shared. So no we've got, yeah, so you're looking at balance, you're looking at control of motion, you're looking at strength. What else might you be looking at? Will you get them on a treadmill? Will you watch them run? Obviously, depending on the severity of the pain. But Yeah, um, I, I think um, quite a lot of this assessment, I find, will, will unfold over a couple, two or three sessions sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, in, I, I think the challenge is there is so much we can talk about with each patient that you know, sometimes, if, especially if they're particularly... You know, if you have a particularly tough time with an injury, you might find some sessions you, you just about get the subjective done with the patient. So I, th- I think it, it depends on sort of how it unfolds. But typically, it would be session, probably session three or four in these patients where I might actually get them on the treadmill and have a look at them running. Because although the, the gait analysis and retraining is valuable, there, there still isn't really any evidence in people with gluteal tendinopathy that it changes pain. So I'd want the kind of key stuff in there first. I'd want to get the training at the right level. I'd want to look at the impact it's having, look at their kind of um, their strength and conditioning, their beliefs around pain, spend a few sessions getting a good rehab program in place, and then maybe session three or four when the symptoms are a little bit less irritable. You know, if this lady's at a six out of 10 when she's seeing us, then I might get her on the treadmill or or perhaps even do an overground assessment depending on uh, where she does most of her running really. And how are you, what are you assessing when you're looking at running gait in people with a gluteal tendinopathy? 
Well, every assessment I would tend to do a kind of top to toe approach because um, I, I find if you, as soon as you focus on one area, you kind of miss other things. But there will be certain things that I, I might look out for that I suspect would increase the load perhaps on the glutes. So um, overstriding would be one. So where people tend to land out a long way in front of their body, um, mm. that is likely to increase the, the load on a number of structures, including the, um, the hip and knee. Um, so that would be something to look for. Um, sometimes uh, runners will be quite narrow in their running gait, and uh, often that will be accompanied with an increase in hip adduction. So then when they're loading the hip during that stance phase of running, they're loading it in a position of adduction, which we know is quite provocative mm -hmm. for the Bluetooth tendon. So that would certainly be something I'd look for. Um, also in stance phase, whether they have contralateral pelvic drop, um, that can go hand in hand with increased hip production. So we're having this reasoning process, you know, what in this running gait pattern could increase the load on the glutes and gluteal tendon? Um, and then what can we do about it? And mm -hmm. uh, final fa sort of factor might be perhaps trunk position. Are they really flexed at the trunk? Because um, increased uh, trunk flexion, particularly if it's coupled with increased hip adduction, can increase gluteal load as well. So they'd all be things I'd look out for and then we might experiment and try a few things to see if we can change that movement pattern a little bit. It's fine tuning, really. We don't want to make big changes, but then see if that has any influence on their, um, on their symptoms. Got it. And not to get too into the weeds here, but are you videoing your patients and then watching this in slow motion? Do you have some sort of video capture? Or do, are they yeah. wearing, or do they have wearables on or, you know? Um, most of the time I would be, um, I would be videoing them on um, a handheld device and either a, um, I, I use a big, uh, one of the larger tablets because it's, um, it's got a good frame rate and you can, you can, you know, really see on the screen or even some of the smaller smartphones these days have got high frame rates. And I often use um, an app, something like Huddle Technique I use quite a bit because that allows you to actually, you know, look at it in slow motion. Um, and because you, I, I think you do need to really, I think it, it's, it's almost impossible to sort of eyeball someone's running gait and assume, you know, um, that you can make good, reliable um, assessments on it. So, so yeah, absolutely. I would video it and I would look at that in, in, in slow motion and, and, and that would hopefully allow me to identify some of those factors. Cool. And what's the name of the app again that you just said? It's Huddle, Huddle Technique. It's H-U-D-L. Oh, Huddle. Okay. Oh, huddle. Yeah, yeah. I know that. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. It used to be UberSense or something, but I think yeah, they had to change yeah. it because of Uber. Because of Uber. Yeah. Yes. I think okay. so, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, that is all. It's all coming back to me. I think I have it on my phone. I sometimes use Coach's Eye, but I feel like it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's just personal preference, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, I mean, if you're looking at... Um, you know, what could reduce the stress on the glutes with gait changes. In theory, an increase in step rate um, can reduce the stress on the glutes because the glutes actually work quite hard. They're, the peak load on glute needs about four times body weight, and that is during the stance phase of running. And mm -hmm. there, is, there is some research that increasing the step rate can reduce that peak load a little bit mm -hmm. um, and would usually um, reduce an overstride. So if they're overstriding, particularly they've got a low step rate, it would be reasonable to try increasing the step rate Mm -hmm. um, uh, by a little bit. Typically, I start at about 5% and see how they respond and go from there. Okay. Or if they, um, if they uh, are very narrow and they have quite a lot of hip adduction using a, a cue, like don't let the knees touch, um, 
often that just that simple cue will get them to come slightly wider between the knees to reduce the hip adduction because really we do want these changes to be subtle if we make a big change it often irritates something else because we change we might be offloading or reducing the load on the glutes but probably at the downside of making something else work a bit harder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, then that makes a lot of sense. And I like that external cueing there versus telling the patient, yeah. having them look down and say, don't let the knees touch is a lot better than saying, try and keep your knee straight forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, the step break's great because that's a purely external cue because they're just running to mm-hmm. a metronome. Yeah. Um, I think technically the don't let the knees touch one, it, I suppose technically it probably is an internal cue, but it's simple enough that people tend to be able to get it. You know, I, th- I think if you're going to use an internal cue that focuses on movement, I think it, it, it needs to be quite simple. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, as, I, you're totally right. I mean, if you're saying, right, point your knees ahead, keep your pelvis level, squeeze your glutes. I mean, <laughs> what? The, <laughs> all of, and also run. Yeah. yeah and then run. run. Yeah. yeah. It's just too much. And it, and it kind of can suck the joy out of running a bit if you're spending the whole time thinking Thinking. about a million different things yeah Yeah. can you imagine like oh i have to make sure that when i my foot strikes it strikes this way and to make sure my knee does keep my knee forward and don't let my pelvis drop and i mean you just be thinking the whole time absolutely yourself crazy and and i think again it comes down to you know communication and you imagine if you if you word this gait assessment in the wrong way with a patient with quite a negative view towards their pain perhaps a little bit of loss of confidence in their body already, you could make it worse. So sure. if you're telling this patient, you know, and I've heard people told this, you know, you're not, you're not built for running or, oh gosh, I've looked at your running gait and you're all over the shop. Like that's really, you know, I really would, would recommend not doing that. So, you know, I think whatever we choose to recommend in terms of, you know, our gait or our strength thing, we just try to try and deliver it in a positive way, you know, highlight mm-hmm. the good things, you know, this, this part of your running gait was really good. This was good. If we can fine tune this a little bit and make it a bit more comfortable, that is much, much more preferable to, well, you're not built for running and of course you're going to get pain. Terrible. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Terrible. terrible. Especially when, if that person does this to kind of reduce their stress and anxiety with the rest of their life, you're not doing them any favors there. Now, no. Let's talk about, so we've talked about kind of your evaluation and things like that. And I think you already gave us a little bit of some advice on how you would treat them by modifying their, uh, their running gait. But what else would be potentially included in a, in a full rehab program for this 55-year-old woman with, with a gluteal tendinopathy? So, so we, we definitely would be making some training changes um in you know to try and bring her training to a level that doesn't cause lasting irritation um you know hopefully you'll be able to keep some running going because we know it's important for her in terms of, of her mood and mental well-being uh, but we could be redu- taking hills out if that's really provocative reducing the distance a little bit um, maybe replacing some of the more provocative sessions with some cross training if that's comfortable so that's definitely a big part of this and I think if we don't make those training changes, if they just keep doing what's aggravating it, it's quite hard to get the other play, the other parts of the rehab to really work. So that would definitely come in there um, alongside some good education, good positive explanation of, of, of why things hurt and in a way that actually allows you to go on to the rehab. You know, um, we were chatting a bit before, weren't we? If, you know, if, if someone believes that they're, they're damaged and the exercise is going to damage that area and your solution as a physio is, 
exercise, it's really unlikely they're going to do it. So we've got to try and reframe it in a positive light that says, you know, tendons are actually pretty robust. They're really strong structures. They like to be loaded and exercised. And I often say they're a bit like a muscle. We know if you work a muscle, it gets stronger and it gets bigger. And a tendon can do the same thing. It just takes a little bit longer. And we just have to be um, a little bit more careful about finding the right level of exercise. You know, and if we can find the right level, then we can build you up. So, you know, that then helps us to say, okay, well, let's find the right level with the training and let's find the right level with your rehab. And then let's build you back up to whatever your goal is. And um, do you find that that helps with adherence of the program as well? Because it, it, you can give all of the advice in the world, but if the person doesn't adhere to it, it's kind of doesn't matter. So do you find that if you're giving explanations like the one you just gave that your patients tend to have a greater adherence or are if, if you're working with runners, they want to get better, they want to get back to it. So they're going to be more compliant. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Yeah, I'm very fortunate because I think runners are generally very motivated, but, Mm -hmm. but I would say in my experience and also from some of the research, I would say that, yes, if you, if, if you give a more positive explanation like that, they're more likely to do the exercises and things, definitely. Um, but I do think some of it's influenced by their expectations. If they've come in expecting a fix and, and you're not offering a fix, you're offering them solutions, then that can be difficult to get them on board because you're not quite delivering on their expectations. So it's good you've got to notice that early on and, and address it, you know, talk to them about it. Uh, but yeah, I think a good explanation. I mean, think about it. None of us would just, if you just gave me a sheet of exercises and pointed me to the door, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do them unless we knew why, unless we knew the benefits, unless we knew how it linked to what we wanted to actually get in terms of our goals. Yeah, uh, totally. And as far as expectations, are you also trying to give general timeline expectations to your patient as best that you can, given the research and, the, and your experience? Yeah, I do try to, but I'm quite cautious with it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll often say to people, you know, these things tend to get better, but it is a bit difficult to predict the time scale. And, um, you know, so uh, we'll say to them, you know, give it, do allow it time to change. And we do have some research now um, that gives us some idea. Um, you know, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have read the, the LEAP trial by um, Mellor that came out um, in May. Brilliant, brilliant trial in um, Bluetooth tendinopathy. Um, where they were getting quite positive changes of about an 80% success rate at about eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So I think that's quite useful to say, you know, we can say, well, from the research, actually quite a few people are going to see some significant change at around about the eight-week mark. So it gives them a ballpark figure, but I'll often, you know, to, you know make a little caveat with that and say, well, but some people will be quicker, some people are a bit, a bit slower, but, you know, hopefully you'll notice this is gradually building towards, you know, where you want to be. Yeah. And I think that's important to even give that, that eight week mark, because I think a lot of people feel like if they're coming to physical therapy, like you said, they're looking for the fix. They want to be fixed quickly. Um, and sometimes people might have like an unrealistic expectation. Like it's, it's been, it's been, it's been, it's been two weeks. Why don't I feel percent? So giving people some realistic timeframes based on the literature, I think can go a long way. Absolutely. And, you know, expectations are important. Expect flare-ups. That's also quite important because mm. we're, we've told them we need to find the right level with exercise, but that, that takes a bit of time. So if they know session one or even session two that probably at some point they're, they're going to do a bit much and things are going to be sore for a day or so, but that's fine. We'll help them manage it. It's, it just means they've worked a bit hard. It won't harm anything. Then 
it's less scary when it happens. You know, they don't feel they're back to square one. They don't stop all their training because they've had a, you know, a flare in their symptoms. So yeah, I think expectations are quite important really. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think it's important that a flare up doesn't mean a freak out. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a nice way of putting it actually. Because I, I know from my own experience, when I would have flare-ups of neck pain, I would freak out. And yeah. it just was not helping my cause at all. So now if I have a flare-up, I just go to the gym and try and keep moving. And it's a much better way of being than like laying in bed for the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's quite hard. It depends on who you are, but I think quite a few of us, when we have a flare up in pain or, or actually a flare up in like stress or anxiety and things. It is difficult to be objective and uh, it's quite easy actually to slip into a habit of maybe ruminating on it and really getting worried about it. Um, and you know, I, I encourage patients to actually have, um, I call it a pause pack. Um, and that is, you know, literally to write down a little bit of a plan for what they can do during a flare up of, of either pain or of like mental distress. So that they know, okay, well, when I'm struggling, I, I've got my pause pack to refer to. And it is useful to have it written down. It literally exercises that help, um, you know, things, things to do that are positive, relaxation, mindfulness, trying to stay active, you know, what type of um, simple pain relief works for them, whether it might even be just a hot bath, a bit of ice, like you said, staying active. You know, if you can get people to, to have that in place, particularly if they're a, a patient that's had their problem a while, then that can, that can really help reduce the worry of the flare-up. And actually, what I'm finding is often people don't end up feeling they need the pause back because they've got it. They don't feel they need it. They kind of feel like they're in control. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of something to fall back on there that you know, helps them if they're having a, a particularly tough time. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's a pause pack. I feel like pause pack. Ac- your accent's getting to me. I'm like, what's pause he pack. saying? Yeah, like, pause. Pause is in like... Yeah, I like the pause button on the telly. And okay. I, I call it that because it is important to kind of like pause for a minute, take stuff it. where you are and, you know, um, and then you can kind of uh, hopefully have all the kind of key stuff written down in there. Really. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's a great idea. And I'm going to start doing that with my patients and with myself probably. Oh, cool. um, I think that's a great idea. And, and I think it can also help with that um, calming of the nerves a little bit. And, and also, like you said, making sure that you tell the patient you may have a flare up. And if you do, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Because when you have a flare up, especially if you have like a gluteal tendinopathy, cause that hurts. Oh yeah. I mean, that is super painful. And if you have a flare up, you're like, Oh no, here we go again. What am I going to do? I'm not going to be, this is going to throw me off for another eight to 12 weeks or something like that. So being able to at least understand that it's a possibility of happening goes a long way. I think as well, sometimes sense of humor can help us in these situations. One of my um, patients, uh, she had a flare up in her gluteal tendinopathy and she said, I'm fine. I've I've just got a very angry buttock. Yeah. That was a really good way of putting it. Just got an angry buttock. Yeah. Fair enough. You know, and she could laugh at it and she, you know, it wasn't so much of an issue. She knew she could deal with it. So sometimes, you know, a bit of sense of humor helps us through the hard part, the hard yeah. parts, I think. I think that can be a good coping strategy versus yeah. kind of ruminating in your head about all the things that could go wrong now that you've got this pain, now that this pain, quote unquote, is back. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the thing is, we've talked, I mean, obviously we've talked lots here, but we, we you know, um, 
the rehab. We haven't talked about the rehab yet, um, but that's obviously a big part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and and staying with that LEAP trial, there were lots of different great exercises in that LEAP trial, um, which is open access. It's well worth people having a look that they did this progressive um, loading to strengthen up uh, the glutes and the glutes tendon. Um, with, with runners, sometimes I find I would need to take them to, a, to perhaps a higher level um, than, than you would with someone who's perhaps coming in, um, you know, they're quite deconditioned. Maybe their goal is to be walking pain-free as opposed to running pain-free. Um, so with the runners, I'll often look at, you know, um, the strength, the control and, um, the range of movement. So I would want to build that, that, um, you know, foundation of control with things like single leg stand and single leg squat. Um, then that perhaps taking that on to step ups and lunge movements or squat movements to get the control of those movements to try and um, you know improve how they move around the um, the hip and the pelvis. So I would include some control exercises in there. Um, if there is a loss of range of movement at the hip or the or the back, um, then I would um, or down the chain and the ankle perhaps, then I would usually include some range of movement stuff in there too, just to try and restore that that normal range. Um, if you think, for example, if you've got a loss of hip extension, it's difficult for you to propel effectively mm -hmm. in running because you need a good sort of five to 10 degrees of hip extension during propulsion. So trying to restore the range for function. And then strength wise, um, you know, typically I do want to include at least two or three exercises for glute need. Um, and they usually will need to be out of adduction positions initially. And I might need to start with them isometrically. So with this lady, if she's quite irritable, she's five out, you know, six out of ten pain. Mm -hmm. I might start with something really simple, like um, lying uh, on her side, but with the bad, the painful leg uppermost supported on pillows. So that perhaps it's just in slight abduction, mm -hmm. and just getting her to lift the weight of the leg off the pillow. So she's she's just doing a little bit of hip abduction from a not from an adductive position mm -hmm. and maybe starting with quite short duration holds 10 or 15 seconds and gradually trying to increase the the length of time she's holding that for mm -hmm. um i might include in there um perhaps some isometric hip hitches uh, which was um used in the globe trial and yep quite a nice, quite a nice part of that globe trial is that they they did some eng studies on um postmenopausal women and they actually found that they're hip hitch actually really does recruit the glute med quite successfully. So that was part of the reason why the hip hitch formed quite a strong part of their rehab program mm -hmm. in there. So, you know, you can see it's going to work. The glutes maybe help pelvic control too. So we could have a little bit of abduction work, a little bit of hip hitching early on isometrically to help activate the glutes, calm some of the pain down, and then, you know, start building in as things get better, some of the single leg control work, start taking that to more dynamic glute med exercises. Um, again, probably starting out of adductive positions, um, building up the strength, and then perhaps towards the end of the rehab, exposing them to deeper positions of hip flexion, deeper positions of adduction, if they need it for function. Um, you know, and you, you see in some sports, um, you know, looking at, look at things like skating and curling and, um, you know, uh, football and team sports, they do end up loading in adaptive positions. So we, we may need to, to actually load them into that in their rehab, mm -hmm. you know, to prepare them for it. And are you also adding in any plyometric work, uh, jumping, that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, potentially. Um, I'd often want to get, you know, achieve our strength goals with, uh, with the glutes, often strengthen the rest of the kinetic chain. As we said, the quads and the calf, again, they did that in the globe trial. Um, but plyometric stuff I would include right at the end because mm-hmm. the downside of plyometric stuff is it's often quite provocative. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're adding it onto running, which is also a plyometric activity, it can be enough to tip people over into a flare-up. So I often find a lot of people do quite well with the training load management, the education and simple strength work. And then if they're at a high level with their sport, maybe they're a jumping athlete, you know, you're a volleyball player, a basketball player, a high jump, long jump, then yeah, absolutely. I want to bring in some plyometric stuff, but for quite a lot of people, once you've got them stronger, you've got the training at the right level, you've got the lifestyle stuff on board they're often doing quite well and they're often back to the kind of training they, mm-hmm. they want to do. So they, you may not feel they need to go that step further. And so you're really looking at what this, I mean, in this case, we've got a runner, but I'm glad that you brought up things uh, like football or where people have to get down into a lower stance. So if you're like a, a tackle in football, you're down in a flexed and, and oftentimes adducted position. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hockey's another one. I mean, look at the, you know, a lot of hockey players in quite sort of flex strength positions and yeah. things. So like the I goalie. Think, yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, but also I think as well, there's, there's an aspect of this that it's just starting to come to the fore. Like we've got evidence in people like Sean McAuliffe. We've got this brilliant work by um, Flynn Singer at all recently. Um, we've got smaller stuff like Green's work, which is a master's thesis showing the kind of, the fear, the psychological aspects to tendon pain. And yet at the same time, we're, we are also teaching people avoidance, which doesn't go hand in hand with that very well. So no, we're often telling people, this is compressing the tissue and therefore it needs to be avoided. So I, I think that we've got to try and marry up those concepts together. There's you know, good evidence from the LEAP and GLOBE trials that you know, education to reduce compression can help reduce pain. But I think maybe that needs to be delivered in a way that allows you to, to, to make those activities normal and allows you to bring people back into normal activities when they're comfortable to. So I actually, I don't use the word compression too much anymore with tendons. I, I would just tend to say, well, if you add up the hip, if you sit with your, cross, your legs crossed, it just irritates a little a, a bit at the moment. So for the moment, let's try and reduce those until it calms down. But long term, I want you to be able to sit however you like to sit. Mm-hmm. You know, I want you to be able to do these things. They're normal, but just for the moment, let's, you know, let's reduce those to help it calm down. So we're not leading to avoidance because I am seeing some patients with tendon pain that are avoiding really quite, you know, simple things like avoiding sitting altogether because they're oh terrified. It's, yeah, no, I've treated particularly proximal hamstring tendon. Uh, I know people, patients that won't go out for dinner because they can't find anywhere that, they, that they're happy to sit. And that's really sad. And as we talk about impact, that's the, that's the real life impact for that patient. They're, sure. They've stopped socializing because they're frightened that sitting for, to have dinner with friends will damage the tendon. So that, that's where we've got to be a little bit careful. We don't oversell those messages. And actually, in that case, you could almost argue that that, that message has almost led to, you know, disabled that patient. In Disability, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. it was probably... Uh, you know, delivered overly, you know, you mustn't sit, you know, um, as opposed to saying, well, most of us sit for six to seven hours a day. It's fine. Just cut it down for a little bit until things are a bit more comfortable. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is when you're delivering these messages to not deliver it in an absolutist 
way, but to say, Hey, listen, this is what we had. This is what's happening with you right now. So let's make some modifications for now. And as you start to feel better, perhaps we can, you know, sprinkle these things back in until you can do whatever you want to do with your body. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and that's, you know, they'll know as well that these things can be a bit provocative. So when they do too much of it in the future, you know, okay, maybe that that's what's triggered the flare up. And Mm -hmm. we had a good uh, case with that this week, a really uh, lovely patient who I haven't seen for about eight or nine months. He's a proximal hamstring tendinopathy patient um, because he's not had any symptoms. Um, But he went off and did a really long drive, um, five or six hours uh, up, up north and then spent the weekend cycling doing loads and loads of cycling and then did the same five or six hours drive back right and that flared up his symptoms because it was three days of sitting consecutively for five or six hours yeah. so because we've said to him well it might stir up the tendon a little bit he knows he, he's come back and he said well you know i know i've got to just calm it down a little bit but reduce the sitting for a bit but i'm pleased in a way sort of an, in a way that he's done it that he's it hasn't stopped him. He still wanted to go up to Manchester and drive up north and do the cycling and do the stuff that he wanted to do. And then he'll just manage the symptoms afterwards. It's, it's not led to avoidance. He's mm-hmm. just perhaps pushed it a little bit too far, if that makes sense. So it's, it's, that's, there's a complete there's a contrast there between this gentleman who's still able to do the things he wants to do and someone who has actually led them to stopping quite important stuff as a result of it. So mm-hmm. he's trying to find some... Some kind of uh, sensible middle ground, I think. Yeah, like you said, there's so many areas of gray between a yes and a no and a do and a don't. Yes, that absolutely. As, as a therapist, we have to be cognizant of that with our patient and how that affects our patient's psyche and their beliefs around their injury and pain and recovery. And I think that's where you have all this the research to guide you, but that's sort of the art of the therapy, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. There's definitely, I'm a firm believer in that, that there is certainly, there's an art to it as well as a science. As people like Christian Barton would say, you know, I agree with that. There is that mixture of the two. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So is there anything else you want to add about this particular patient? We've gone through some evaluation, some treatment, how we talk to them, how we include their thoughts, beliefs. uh, And did we miss anything? With the, that's, a, that's a good question because I think the one, uh, one area that perhaps um, does bear, bear talking about is um, some of the intrinsic factors um, that affect tendon health. And when you, um, you look at this, this lady, she's, she's a 55-year-old lady. Um, and when you look at the, um, the population for like the, the LEAP trial, I believe about 80% of them were uh, ladies in their 50s. Um, and we think that's really important for gluteal tendinopathy because um, hormonal changes around the menopause affect the, the tendon health and how well it can manage load. So I think that would be a factor to consider. You know, and, and to consider with all tendinopathies, is there anything else here that can influence how well this tendon is managing load you mm-hmm. know, and, and how well it will adapt to load? So if we think that perhaps there's hormonal change uh, leading up to the menopause or after the menopause, and that's an influence in the tendon, what it often means is our rehab needs to progress a little bit more slowly mm-hmm. um, because the tendon won't, uh, won't adapt so readily to it. So we might be a little bit slower with our rehab progression, a little bit slower with our 
um, training progression in terms of getting her back to her goals. Um, perhaps a little bit more careful to change sort of one thing at a time in that process, not to up the load, up the running all at once and then find that we're, we're having flare up. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is research um, being done at the moment. Um, Ganderton at all, who did the GLOBE trial, that, that trial, as I understand it, is part of a bigger ongoing trial looking to see whether um, uh, taking uh, hormone replacement therapy affects outcomes in gluteal tendons. So interesting. it'd be, be interesting to see if it does, it, it may then um, you know, give another option for, for uh, women uh, with gluteal tendonopathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much to think about. When this person's in front of you, I think you gave a really great uh, overview of how we as therapists can kind of think about these patients when they walk in our door. And so thanks for that. Now, oh, thank you. It's been yeah. good, good to chat. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing I will mention, Karen, if it's all right. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, we can, uh, we can uh, give a link to this if you like. Be- because there's so much to think about with tendons, where mm-hmm. you develop this um, tendon Q uh, tendon health questionnaire um, a year or so back. It's actually a team effort on Twitter um, involving lots of people involved in tendon uh, research and treating tendinopathy. So that's um, it's a one sheet wonder. So essentially, the, once you, you think it is a tendon problem, you ask the patient to fill it out, perhaps between the first and second session. Mm-hmm. And it screens for things like um, changes around the menopause, um, like uh, diet. Uh, diabetes, certain medications, um, various other past medical history that can influence tendon health. So it allows you to kind of screen for any of these other things and, and helps, um, you know, helps to make sure that you cover all the bases. But it's also got a question in it about fear of tendon damage mm-hmm. uh, and questions about sleep, stress and mental health. So it's designed to kind of, you know, uh, allow you to identify areas that you might want to then um, explore more with the patient. Awesome. And if you, you, you'll send that to me, we'll put it up in the show. We'll put it in the show notes under this episode, along with some of the research that we've been kind of alluding to uh, throughout the program. So for everyone listening, if you go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode, which is going to be 356, um, we'll have all these resources. So you one click away and you can get them all. Brilliant. And now, yeah. And now I have one more question that I ask everyone, and I probably should have prefaced this to you ahead of time, and I'm sorry that I didn't. But um, so you I got always, me nervous now, Karen. It's it's what really kind of it's, question an easy, is it's an easy one. Don't worry. <laughs> good, good, um, okay. So, given where you are now in your life and in your work, what advice would you give to yourself as a new graduate straight out of physio school? Ooh, that's a good question. I think I think probably I would I would say you know really try and um, you know harness harness your passion for the stuff that you really like um, because that that's what's really helped me I think in um, in my career is, is is when I started to specialize in running injury because I love running and the, working with runners and all the things that go with it that really kind of sparked off the passion to then want to explore it to want to read the research to want to know more about it and I think. You know, if I could have harnessed that earlier on in my career, then, um, you know, that would have been brilliant. And, and you know, who, who knows where I would be today, I think, if I'd have, if I'd have managed to find that sort of uh, in, in those first few days of being physio. Well, I mean, I think you're doing okay. Um, <laughs> but I think that's great advice. And, and, but I think you're doing just fine where you are. I think you're probably exactly where you need to be. 
Um, oh, now, yes. Thank you, Kerry. That being said, where can people find you? Um, so um, come and say hello on Twitter. I'm at Tongu. Um, come and uh, see us on the website. So it's running-physio.com. Um, and we're also uh, on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page, Instagram, all the usual. But I'm mm-hmm. most active on Twitter. So that's probably Perfect. the best place to catch me, really. And, and we'll have your website up on our website as well. And you have a newsletter and everything. Well, whatever. That's right. Yeah, we've, uh, which we've is, got a which newsletter. Which is really good. So I, I encourage people who are listening to this to sign up for it. And we'll have a link to that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been really good fun. It's been good. I thought we could uh, this is something we could talk about this for hours, I reckon. It wouldn't uh, be a problem. No, 100%. But, you know, people will probably get, start to get a little bored. Although I hear the long form. <laughs> uh, Christian Barton said, if you're going to do a podcast, it has to be like 15 minutes or less or long form. Anything, okay. any, or I think 20 minutes or less. He said anything else in between people kind of tune out. So uh, I would assume this was more a long form, but it was such great information. So thanks so much. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. And like I said, all the resources will be at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode 356. So everyone have a great uh, week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.